Hello, I'm Tiernan Ray, and you are listening to the Technology Letter Podcast for Sunday, December 18th, 2022. Terrible week for stocks. The Nasdaq Composite Index closing down 2.7% for the week. That makes its month-to-date decline 6.65%. The Standard & Poor's 500 Index closing down 2% for a month-to-date decline of 5.6%. The proximate cause, of course, was Wednesday's half a point Federal Reserve rate hike, which prompted a broad sell-off that day. And the comments from the Fed in the time since Wednesday have not been encouraging. In an article in the Financial Times by Colby Smith uh, at the end of the week on Friday, New York Fed President John Williams uh, was quoted, he acknowledges that price pressures are easing, but expressed concern that the services sector of the economy, which is core to inflation numbers, uh, is going to prove harder to eliminate, harder to reduce inflation in services. Quote, we've got a few factors I think are going to bring inflation down to 3 to 3.5% 3 next year, but then the real issue is how do we get it all the way to 2%, Williams said in an interview. San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly also striking uh, a concerning tone, said, quote, long way to go, unquote, before declaring victory in inflation. And the risks are still tilted to the, quote, upside in terms of further price pressures. And the central bank is going to continue to squeeze the economy until the job is, quote, well and truly done on inflation, says Mary Daly. There were also some concerning items in the economic data out there, or economic reports at least. A report by Michael J. Moore on Friday in Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs plans to cut as many as 4,000 jobs, or 8% of the bank's workforce. This comes along with reports of uh, vastly slashed bonuses on Wall Street. So individual enterprise corporate data certainly not encouraging. Bear in mind also that Friday was what's called quadruple witching, which is the expiration of options contracts on multiple different products, including stocks and indices, and that can have a destabilizing effect on stocks as well. Even in anticipation of that happening can play havoc with stock prices. Chip stocks had been an area of health up until this week, uh, but the benchmark Philadelphia Semiconductor Index dropped harder than the indices, down 3%, and part of that is certainly the response to Fed tightening like every other industry, but part of it is also concerns about what's going on in the heart of chip production in China with the recent ramp down of COVID lockdown measures. Uh, and in that respect, on Monday, we got an interesting report from an analyst, R.C. Rajkumar, who is with the Boutique Links Equity Strategies, noting that what's going to happen now, in Rajkumar's view, is that Cases are soaring, and as that happens, there's going to be lots of absenteeism from the production line. Rajkumar writes, quote, the supply chain has been looking forward to upside as China eased up on those lockdown measures, but overnight media reports warn of a dramatic increase in COVID cases across China and Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Canton. And this is corresponding with a high travel time in advance of Chinese New Year around about February. So there's concern that as more and more cases build, that people are just going to not be able to be show up to contract manufacturers and to chip semiconductor factories. Uh, and there's already some sense that smartphone chip production specifically is being hampered, writes Rajkumar, based on checks. Checks are 
are what analysts always say when they have a variety of people they talk to, but they don't exactly disclose who that's about. Um, that may affect Apple's iPhone 14 supply, Raj Kumar writes. Um, maybe this will die down in three to six months, but that might involve herd immunity, and betting on herd immunity is a little bit of a stretch, uh, as we have seen across the history of coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. The TL20 list of 20 great companies to consider fell much harder than the broader indices this week, down 7%, uh, and that was entirely because of Tesla. Tesla is the worst performer in the TL20. It was down 16% this past week, uh, and that brings um, that brought down the TL20 to, by 6% for the, for the month to date. Um, Tesla, without Tesla, right now the TL20 is down 12.6% since inception. Without Tesla, it would be down 2%. So it would be doing better than NASDAQ if it was the TL19. Uh, Tesla is the biggest name in the TL20, and the group is market cap weighted. So that's why it has that kind of effect. It's proportionate to its size. I dug into Tesla a little bit this weekend and what's going on there. And, you know, people are sort of debating. Elon Musk's focus on Twitter, the time spent on Twitter, the attention given to Twitter, and all that is happening against the background of people being concerned that Tesla is a bubble company and a bubble stock. What does that mean? Meaning it came of age and it came public in 2010 and it really ramped up production of Model S and then Model 3 and Model X, and now Model Y in the years subsequent to its IPO. That was a time of relative uh, economic strength and affordable luxury with a lot of money sloshing around. And so people wonder if the prices are going to hold up, if demand will hold up as the economy gets tighter and tighter. The cost of a Model 3, for example, is just under 50000 for the base model. People are saying these are not recession-favorable prices. Uh, what struck me is that the metrics that Tesla offers don't really help. The classic combo of, of financial disclosure for Tesla is they announce deliveries when they hand off the car to the owner right after the close of a quarter. They announce aggregate deliveries and then that's followed a couple weeks later by the actual revenue report. And so when things have been going well uh, for several years now, analysts were content to seize upon the deliveries number and use it to predict a very positive revenue report. But now deliveries are being affected by things such as the supply, supply chain. The company's having to spend more to arrange for freight operations in a tight freight market. They're, they have been having trouble getting parts for many, many months now. And so deliveries have been thrown off in, in a way that doesn't correspond to demand. So deliveries don't seem to correspond now to demand. They're not a clean read on demand. And the other figures that are in the Tesla financial disclosure are not helpful for as a proxy for, for automotive demand. Deferred revenue on the balance sheet, for example, is really about things such as Tesla's self-driving software deliveries and system software updates that it sends over the air to the vehicle. So these things are not about the actual sale of the vehicle themselves. Uh, the other metric that is uh, somewhat relevant is customer deposits, which is, you know, you put down $250 when you buy a Model 3, and that's recorded in customer, de customer deposits as a liability that has to be fulfilled. But that's also a mix of other products, the energy products that Tesla sells. So it's not a clean read on the auto number either. My suggestion for Elon Musk is to offer some other stats here 
um, maybe take a page from the software vendors. You know, I wrote a year ago about software vendors were constantly coming up with new metrics. One of them, remaining performance obligation, RPO, a figure that's tossed around by companies such as Snowflake, other software vendors, is a measure of total value of software contracts stretching out into the future that have yet to be fulfilled and therefore yet to be recognized as revenue. Maybe something like that. Maybe something like um, Tesla's order book value in dollar terms, even once in a while to disclose that, to give us a clear, concrete sense of how demand is doing. In the breach, what we get from Elon Musk are vague qualitative statements. For example, in October, he told the street, quote, demand is a little higher than it would otherwise be unquote, without elaborating. So the company doesn't provide enough information. I don't expect that Elon Musk is really going to provide any additional metrics because I don't think that he really cares about reassuring investors in that respect. I think he expects that people will stick with the story, with the mission, which is to dominate EVs, which the company still does, by a wide margin, I might add, ahead of Ford and, and ahead of its competitors, such as Rivian and Faraday and Lucid, which are struggling to even reach volume production. So it's quite possible that the real story of Tesla as a stock will next turn to the prospect of a buyback. Musk had told people in October that it's a very real possibility. He said, quote, we've debated the buyback idea extensively at board level. The board generally thinks that it makes sense to do a buyback. Even if next year is a very difficult year, we still have the ability to do a $5 billion, $10 billion buyback. This is obviously pending board review and approval. So it's likely that we'll do some meaningful buyback. So if you're a Tesla investor and you've been slogging through this terrible stock performance, your next hope is that there is a pretty huge buyback. Um, in a time when earnings reports from software have been generally pretty dismal, I talked this week with two companies that are not at all uh, doing poorly, that are thriving despite uh, what appears to be greater scrutiny on software purchasing, uh, extended deal times, as many companies have said, just get a signing. GitLab is a young software, pump, uh, software company that came public in October of last year. It sells a tool that software developers use to manage their code. It's called a version control system. You check code in, check code out. It's a way for people to manage collaboration without um, stepping on each other's toes. So this company, which is uh, not quite yet a half a billion dollars in, re in annual revenue, just reported uh, the, a week ago their fifth quarter in a row since going public that they have beaten expectations by a very healthy margin and the fifth time that the forecast was also higher. And the interesting thing is uh, I spoke with the CFO of the company, Brian Robbins, and he told me that um, although they are having some pressure on getting existing customers to do renewals, to, to sign, to re-sign uh, what they've been using, actually they had a lot more companies coming in to uh, in the door for the first time, what they call first orders quarter. And they had uh, surprisingly high numbers of those which boosted their new bookings. And Robin's take on it uh, was that new companies are scrounging around for something to do to make themselves more productive in a time of belt tightening. He said, uh, people are, quote, people are coming on the platform. I think the, the economy is really helping push people towards doing more with less, greater collaboration, get more efficient show and ROI. Uh, and so he was super happy with that. Again, remember, this company, as I said, is not yet at um, a half a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, so if you've got 400 million per quarter, I, the effect of that is that you are not as great a line item 
for CFOs who are looking to cut costs. And I think that may help a young company like GitLab is that they come, come under radar somewhat. A uh, very different conversation I had this uh, week was with a company called Procore Technologies, about a 20-year-old company. They sell software to general contractors in the construction business. Craig Cortemanche, uh, nicknamed Tui, is a fellow I've spoken with a couple times before. Uh, this is also a company that is doing very, very well uh, despite uh, the longer lead times, tighter deal signings in software generally. This was the sixth quarter in a row that the company just reported a week ago uh, uh, that they beat revenue expectations. And the fifth quarter out of six that showed a smaller than expected net loss. Also, the company's for forecast for this quarter's revenue beat as well the third time and it was the third time the company has raised its revenue outlook. We didn't talk as much about the quarter, uh, other than it's going well. What we did talk about was the company, since it's newly public, had its first ever analyst day a month ago. And what they talked about there was how they're bringing new features to this software. So today, what the software is used for is a whole bunch of functions that manage um, the project timeline, and manage billing and invoicing and things like this, all the things that a contractor needs to do. Um, and so the company is now adding to that. They've got a, a feature coming up called Procore Pay that will manage how a general contractor pays the subcontractor. And as Corte Manche told me, it kind of gets them inside of the dollar flow of contracting from which they can do a lot of other things. They're looking at some fintech style businesses. So for one, one would be MatFi, which is materials financing. So you're a contractor, you don't want to have to front all of the money for buying materials. Procore will effectively buy the materials for you and then turn around and sell them to you. So they, Procore fronts the money for materials and this can <clears throat> really help general contractors who are dealing with budget issues. Now one of the things that Procore does not have right now is profitability. Uh, it is not profitable and the expectation uh, by the street is going to be several years uh, yet. But the company has demonstrated can narrow its negative non-GAAP operating margin. It can make its, its non-GAAP uh, operating profit margin less bad by three to four percentage points a year over a multi-year period. So they showed some historical data about this. Um, but basically the street thinks they won't be profitable until 2026. Um, but the contention from uh, Corte Manche and from his, sec his CFO, Paul Leandres, is trust us, we've done this before, we can make this company more and more steadily profitable. And the bet is if they can reinvent construction as a more rational business, this will really be um, a, a huge, huge opportunity for the company. Um, they're trying to rationalize with these things like material financing. They're trying to get inside of how companies plan, how they do construction. Um, because as uh, Corte Manche was telling me, a lot right now gets decided over golf games. Um, he said, quote, I'll tell you, in today's world, general contractors will select their subcontractors based off of who they played golf with last. It's not a data-driven decision. Right. And the idea might be, can you make those general contractors more rational by showing them data, um, to be data-driven instead of just bringing on subcontractors based on relationships of who they like. Um, and Corte Manche tells me there's a lot of um, enthusiasm and interest in the construction business to do this. He says the industry is really desperate, quote unquote, to do things smarter. 
quote, you could be a subcontractor on a job and you could be winning big time on that job, but if the job itself is falling, failing because of other subcontractors, you're about to lose. So nobody can win in isolation. So this is the argument for smarter software is going to make the construction industry be a different kind of industry. We're pretty much at the dregs. Uh, we're beyond the dregs now of earnings season. We're really at the end of earnings season. And what happens at the end of earnings season is that Oracle, the software giant in databases and cloud services, starts off the next earnings season. And that's what they did uh, this past Monday. Um, with results and outlook that beat expectations. The focus in this call with CEO Safra Katz and CTO and co-founder Larry Ellison was big customers. Ellison talked about new companies that have come to Oracle's cloud computing service, FedEx, Deutsche Bank, and the Tokyo Stock Exchange, said Ellison, quote, we're the only ones running a major stock exchange, unquote, among all the cloud providers, meaning Azure, Amazon, Google, they don't have a major stock exchange running on their cloud. Um, this is winning these big customers is important because um, CEO Safra Katz noted the company is expecting its cloud revenues to accelerate their growth. So the fiscal year, uh, uh, this fiscal year we're in, is going to be over 30% in constant currency cloud revenue growth, um, and that's up from 22% uh, in the prior fiscal year. So Oracle clearly doing something right in cloud computing. Ellison attributes a lot, by the way, to the growth of artificial intelligence and machine learning. The more and more of those jobs are moving to cloud and demanding huge horsepower. Said Ellison, quote, the workloads, AI and machine learning is a huge, is exploding, he said. NVIDIA is a recent win for Oracle. NVIDIA bringing its computing to Oracle Cloud. Quote, NVIDIA, the people who provide the GPUs for almost all AI workloads, they're moving a huge amount of stuff to the Oracle Cloud and a bunch of other companies that are doing that. So Cloud is a bright spot for Oracle. It's boosting results, and uh, it's been pretty good for the stock this year. Earnings will resume <clears throat> the first week of January with Smart Global, uh, among others, which is a company that creates server computer systems. I think they have the Penguin Computing brand. Uh, that's a big Linux favorite. Um, they also package memory chips to go into things such as smartphones. It's kind of a, it's a holding company. I've profiled them in the past, a bunch of businesses. They'll report on Tuesday the 3rd, <clears throat> and later that week we'll get a, another early earnings report from Duck Creek Software, makers of accounting software, financial software. If you're looking into semiconductors, uh, in particular silicon carbide, I had an interesting note uh, this week from a Susquehanna analyst, a longtime chip analyst, Christopher Rowland. You know, the poster child for silicon carbide has been Wolfspeed, which is a company that used to be called Cree that had been in light emitting diodes. They sold that off. They've gone whole hog into silicon carbide. They are the bet on silicon carbide, along with on technology, on semiconductor, I should say. Silicon carbide, of course, a technology that is revolutionizing the powertrain of electric vehicles, a critical part for electric vehicles. Um, the problem with Wolfspeed is that um, they had this event uh, um, about a month and a half ago in October, the New York Stock Exchange, where they told analysts that they are going to need to obtain about $6.5 billion in new capital over several years to expand their factories to create more silicon carbide. That was a shocker to investors at the time. and was not well received. Um, and so Rollins' note this week says basically 
do not buy Wolfspeed, buy a different company that's in silicon carbide, but without the huge capital need, ST Microelectronics, a European firm. Um, Roland notes that the growth of silicon carbide is supposed to be amazing. The total addressable market will be 10 billion by the year 2030. That's a almost 18% compounded annual growth rate from now through 2030. Um, but he says that um, silicon carbide, he says that Wolfspeed is um, kind of making people uneasy by this huge capital raise. Um, we note, quote, we note these capabilities, meaning at wolf speed, require capital a cost that is dilutive to shareholders in the near term. And, he adds, further competition is coming on fast and risks of commoditization remain a possibility. Uh, ST Microelectronics, on the other hand, writes Roland, quote, on top of ST Micro's core analog and power management business, the company is addressing new greenfield opportunities, including silicon carbide, gallium nitride, that's a competing technology going up against silicon carbide, uh, and this, and 3D sensing, and microcontrollers, a number of different areas that are promising in vehicles and industrial applications. So maybe consider ST Microelectronics instead of World Speed if you want a play on silicon carbide. A big thank you to subscribers who today, for the first time, ponied up to pay for a technology letter subscription. Subscriptions went live, $30 for, per month per subscriber. You get the whole site, all the content on the site. I'm really gratified that many readers, including longtime readers who've been following the publication, felt it was worthy to spend money on the publication, and I hope to live up to their expectations in producing much more great content in the weeks and months to come. So thank you to subscribers. If you want to sign up and you haven't yet, you can go to thetechnologyletter.com forward slash subscribe, and there you can click to subscribe, enter your name, email address to create account, then enter your credit card data, uh, and you'll be on your way. For the Technology Letter Podcast, this has been Tiernan Ray. Thank you for listening, and have a great week. I'll see you on the other side. <laughs>